Welcome to Say What You Love. I'm Mark Titus. Today we have an incredible conversation in store for you with April Benz. She's a photographer, a writer, and a creek walker. What a job. Coming to us from Guilford Island in British Columbia. April has just in-depth experience with the wild as she's been living off-grid for years now and has an incredible array of experience underwater with her photography in and around salmon streams, on the coast, and in the rainforest of British Columbia. We talk today about healing our trauma in the wild. We talk about the difference between being and doing and how important it is to be and to make time for that. And of course, we talk about wild salmon, uh, the trouble that they're in, and the incredible sense of belonging that they give us. Hope you enjoy today's episode. If you're digging this podcast, uh, I'd love it if you'd consider giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts or even writing a review in your own words. It really helps a lot to get the message out. Also, if you're looking for wild salmon to your door, we've got a summer solution for you with a summer grilling experience kit through Ava's Wild. And all you have to do is go to avaswild.com. That's the word save spelled backwards, wild.com. And order yourself up a three-month subscription for summer grilling. Along with that, you're going to get both a version of The Wild and The Breach, my two current documentaries, some VR goggles to take a little VR experience to Bristol Bay, and a really amazing action kit on how to take action for Bristol Bay, as well as a Tom Douglas salmon rub to go on top of your salmon when you get it. Hope you enjoy the show today. Can't wait to see you next week. Take care. April Bentz, welcome. Thanks, Mark. It's good to be here. I am glad you're here. It's been a while since we've connected. It seems like ages and ages ago. And of course, we've had a pandemic in between. So it is just so cool uh, to connect through the power and the miracle of modern technology here to to be folding space together here for, for a little bit. So thanks for jumping on. Yeah, absolutely. I know I haven't seen you since pre-pandemic. Um, yeah, hopefully the borders open up again soon, and I can see you in the flesh. Well, so uh, you know, let's let's start this projector up, and uh, if you would, um, maybe paint a little picture for us. And where are you today? Can you um, can you describe what you're seeing out your window for us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am big picture um, in North America on the west coast of Canada and British Columbia on. Uh, zooming in to the island that I'm on is called Guilford Island, and it's an island off of the northeastern tip of Vancouver Island, um, and it's remote boat access only, and today we're having a sunny day, which feels really miraculous because it's been raining a lot this spring, and um, yeah, just looking out the window here, seeing sun after two days of rainy field work, and 
inspiring to go outside after chatting with you. Fabulous. Uh, what are you doing for field work right now? Um, right now I've got, um, I work as a creek walker seasonally. So when the salmon come to spawn, um, every fall, I do about a four month period where I walk up the rivers and count the fish and identify different species and make notes on that. And so the field work I'm doing right now is in preparation for that. And it's basically doing some trail work on the creek walker trails that, um, the salal and salmon berries seem to grow back faster and thicker every year. So uh, right now I'm just doing that trail work. Um, and so the last couple of days I was working on a creek um, that is very thick. And so we basically hmm. uh, got up to lake access where the coho are going to go because um, the coho shoot up to uh, the lake there and come down and spawn later in the fall. And um, yeah, so it's not going to be as much of a bushwhack this year. Coho, for uh, you dear listener, if you're not familiar with all the salmon lingo, is uh, another name for a silver salmon. And um, I I would like to know how I can get on the list to be a creek walker. Um, that sounds like the ultimate job in my estimation. Um, could you just dive in for a little while here and, and, and tell us your story? How did you come into this notion of immersing yourself in the things that you love to kind of, you know, protect and save the things you love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's a big lifelong question and I'll spare you all the childhood details and everything, but essentially I was raised, uh, in a place, uh, called Campbell River on Weewakum territory. And it boasts being the salmon capital of the world. And so my, my childhood and adolescence was quite, um, yeah, the image of the salmon was, was always, um, in, in my narrative, I think. And, and even when I wasn't aware of that and, um, yeah, salmon have always really been like laced into my life and in a myriad of different ways. And, um, it wasn't until I was older that I really became conscious of the impacts of that and, and how eating salmon growing up and going fishing and, you know, my parents, my parents would take my brother and I in uh, a rowboat at the crack of dawn and, and go salmon fishing. Um, sorry, I said it's very the childhood details, but here we go. <laughs> I, I love the childhood details, so please bring them on. Yeah, <laughs> great. Um, yeah, and I, I think I wasn't, yeah, as a kid, I mean, it was just kind of what we did and um, I didn't know any other way of life and um, yeah, I've always eaten fish. And, and like I said, it wasn't until later in life that I became really conscious of what it means to be in relationship with a creature in that way, to, to be, have that predator prey dynamic and to consume another's flesh and, um, and become responsible for that community. And I think that was a really big missing piece early in life is, is being, unconsciously in this relationship with a, a creature that built my body and my bones and nourished me in so many different ways. Um, and not giving back and not even, not even being aware that giving back was a responsibility and a part of that relationship that makes it, that makes it whole and that makes a person whole. And, um, and so I feel like 
my life and my work has really led me to where I am now, where I'm painfully aware of that relationship and of how salmon are the reason for the abundance that I've experienced in my life and and the abundance that I see in the wild places that have healed me and taught me so much. Salmon are the you know, the backbone of that. And they're the thread that weaves that whole tapestry together. And um, yeah, it's, that's been a, a lifelong journey to even realize. And I feel like I'm just now awakening to that in a really deep and real way and, and looking at how, you know, the last eight years or 10 years or so have been looking at like, first becoming aware of that and being filled with gratitude and and now looking at how I can how I can give back and um when the salmon you know need our help the most I don't need to tell you that that the salmon are facing um I don't even know how to say it just at all levels they're just um trying to survive, um, trying to survive industry and, and all of the death by a thousand cuts that, that Western society has placed upon them to survive. Um, and, and yeah, learning many lessons from them through that of how I survived that Western colonial culture myself. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and the avenues to that are through, you know, through the, various like work that I've done and um, from underwater photography um, to filmmaking, conservation filmmaking, and now to, you know, counting them for a living, which I think is just a great place to end up. (laughs) You talk about an awakening and I can identify certain moments in my life when I feel like I awaken to that bigger connection um, and, and a very visceral physical compassion surrounding salmon do you can you identify and and maybe speak to that moment or a series of moments that you 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 know i saw that awakening happening in yourself Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and i think i think there was there was kind of a big one for me and then a series of smaller ones and i still pretty much anytime i go to a salmon river now there's an even more um unfolding in that awakening um and i think it's going to be a lifelong lifelong process for sure Mm -hmm. um but kind of the the one that kicked it off and um made my world go from gray grayscale to color um was the first time i ever breathed underwater um and that was that was during a dive um i yeah, I had the opportunity to take a scuba diving course um, that I honestly wasn't that interested in. And and like I said, like I'd been living this kind of unconscious life. Really, it, it does feel like it was grayscale. And then as soon as I went underwater and took a breath from my regulator um, of the compressed air in the scuba tank uh, and opened my eyes to this this world underwater that existed without me really even knowing about it. Um, except for, you know, in aquariums and things, but yeah, to throw myself in the ocean and literally open my eyes to, to the, yeah, ocean environment and marine ecosystem 
and just really be like, wow, like there's a whole world down here that I've never really thought about. Um, and, and that's really saying something as like somebody who was raised like on the banks of a salmon river and who spent their life um, or their childhood um, salmon fishing and things. And to, to see the ocean as, as this kind of like opaque blue um, barrier rather than what exists below it and, and all of the life there that, that sustains us and, and, you know, where the air we breathe comes from is like the kelp forests and everything. And just so much comes from the ocean and, and to really see it for the first time um, when I was, like, I think, 19 or 18. Um, and so that was kind of the the first shock that that woke me up to that and then um yeah and then from there I was pretty obsessed and became a dive instructor and um yeah I was diving um quite obsessively just wanting to spend all my time underwater and meet all these creatures face to face and um and then from there um I think the first the first kind of like creature I was in relationship with underwater was a giant Pacific octopus. Mm. And I would I would dive before work. Um in my I'd have my dive shop uniform under my dry suit and dive on this little sailboat wreck, about a thirty foot sailboat underwater, and I'd go and visit this octopus um that lived in the sailboat before work and hang out with him for a bit. He was very social. And and then I'd go to work and teach diving. And then after work, I'd do a night dive and go back to the sailboat wreck. And then um, I'd have a uh, light underwater that I'd shine and the octopus um, and I would go hunting and I'd shine the light on the crab and he'd pounce on it and eat the crab. And, um, and then, yeah, and obviously he realized that his hunting success really increased when I was around. And so I think that was part of the reason he was hanging out with me a lot, but um, yeah. And it lasted for about a year of doing that. And then, you know, one day he was gone and octopus don't have very long lives. And that was pretty devastating, but that really kind of woke me up to, to what it was like to have, to be in relationship with non-human creatures. And at that time that meant a lot to me. And um, it really opened the door for, developing relationships with other species like salmon and wolves and bears and um, to realize, yeah, how deep those relationships can go and, um, and the things that they can teach you and, and the ways that you can help them in return because most wild species right now, definitely. Yeah. They need, they need all the help they can get. Wow. I will shamefully admit that I have never breathed from a regulator or haven't yet. Um, but I have river snorkeled, um, with a friend, Russ Ricketts and, um, and then used to actually back in, I was in BC when I was a kid. Uh, my brother and I did, it was Goldwater Provincial Park, um, on Vancouver Island. And yes, uh, I can, hundred percent relate to just that idea of there being such a bigger world that you didn't, it's right there in front of you that you can access. Uh, 
Um, but then you, <laughs> I was pondering that and then you just took it to a whole nother level with your octopus friend and just kind of blew my thoughts sky high. Um, I would imagine you've seen uh, my octopus teacher. Um, I actually haven't because my friend was like, this will break your heart. And honestly, wildlife doc, I've been a part of like filming for wildlife documentaries a lot. And I have um, aversion to wildlife documentaries that will break my heart um, just because, I mean, yeah, after, after going back to the sailboat and, and that underwater sailboat and not seeing the octopus anymore, I mean, that took a while to bounce back from. And I'm sure I, I should watch the octopus feature one day. Um, it seems very, very relevant. Well, you're, you're right on all counts. Uh, it, it will break your heart. And maybe that's good advice for a moment to, um, you know, ponder that. Um, but, you know, for those of us listening you lived what the miracle that happened in that film. And that's, I know it touched my heart profoundly and to have that kind of connection with a wild thing is not something that most people really get in this lifetime. So what a, what a gift, what a blessing. And thank you for sharing that with us because um, we get to live a little bit vicariously through your story. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I was pondering a way to describe uh, the impact your, your images have on me. And the word that I came up with was arresting. I often <laughs> audibly gasp when I see a new image that you take and, and share uh, graciously of the rainforest underwater or the coast. What are you looking for? Um, how do you express yourself through your photography and what are you looking for in an image? What is, or or can you even define that? Um, yeah, well, thank you. I'm, I'm, that means a lot that you have that response. Um, yeah, certainly in those moments that I'm taking the photos, I, I am having similar responses and, um, yeah, often I mess up my shots by doing that gasping or yeah. (laughs) getting too excited um but yeah I think I think when I am definitely more of like an intuitive photographer rather than somebody who's really really engaged with like the technical aspect and all the rules of of photography and and image making um yeah and I think what that means to me is when I take photos I'm really feeling more more like a translator or a scribe and rather than somebody who's going out and capturing Mm. something or making something, I feel like, um, you know, there's this amazing camera technology, um, that I have no idea how it works and somehow it's ended up in my hands. And (laughs) now I have the great privilege and great responsibility to, to document, um, wild places and, um, and yeah, what, what a privilege and what a responsibility in, in this time that we find ourselves in. And I think for me, taking these photos um, is basically just being there, being like in these places with, with creatures. Um, and, and something I've really learned is when not to take a photo. Um, there's moments that I do feel like it isn't appropriate or respectful to take photographs and um, 
and ethics and photography has been so much more important to me than the shots ever will be. And a lot of mentors that I've had have really tried to get me to drop that, um, that belief. And um, yeah, for me, it's, it's like wildlife and, and nature is so beautiful and it's, it feels really easy to capture or not capture, but to translate that beauty. Um, and it's just a matter of being there and, and the way of being in that environment and the way that you show up in those wild places. Um, because yeah, I mean, when you show up in a wild place, you're a part of it. And I think, I think a, a mistake that, um, a lot of photographers make is, that they go into these places and they don't act like they're a part of it. Um, which, which changes mm. the relationship between you and, and the, the animal that you're trying to photograph even. Yeah. And, and with them and too, um, I think that the way that you do it, the process over the product changes the game entirely and makes the biggest difference. And I'm just trying to, to be there in a good way and, and interact with um, with the subjects in a way that isn't invasive and isn't intrusive and doesn't change their behavior. And yeah, I'm hoping to just be kind of like another seagull on the banks. And I try and ask permission before I take photographs and and obviously not verbally, but more with, with that intuition that I was talking about and, and by reading body language and, and the cues that the wildlife give us and yeah that's kind of my philosophy behind that that's so amazing i'm just asking permission in a spiritual sense um i know that I, when i guided i i'm sure that a, a good portion of my guests were thinking i was kind of nuts but i thanked every salmon that came over the gunnel of my boat and you know, um, certainly that's a very real visceral, physical experience, bonking a salmon and, and quickly, you know, ending its suffering. Um, but taking that another step further in, in that respect of capturing its image and hopefully being of service to it, um, but I think that leads beautifully into this this next bit I wanted to chat with you about. Um, you're one of these enraging people that is incredibly talented in many things. And um, one of them is you're, you're also a really wonderful writer. I feel like we share a common language, honestly. Um, when I'm trying to untie the knot I find myself in, I generally find there is fear and ego in the middle of the mess. And um, I found ways, um, mostly through recovery, uh, tools to help dissolve this. But here's one that you describe beautifully in a piece of writing that you wrote some time ago. And I'd just like to, to read that here, if that's okay with you. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so this is from a journal entry. And you, you write, I'm finding the most healing experiences I encounter all have a common thread. They all aid, they all aid in untangling the knots of ego. This is no easy task when raised within a culture that applauds the narcissism that has become so central to daily existence. The place I first experienced the dissolving of my ego was underwater, as you spoke so beautifully about. 
And since that first liquid merging, the feeling has seeped into all aspects of my life. When I am suspended between the ancient walls of a water-carved canyon, I am not an individual, but a part of the river, the same as the water, the rock, the salmon, the crayfish, the suspended leaves. And if I am a part of this river, then so it is that I find myself a part of the ocean, a drop in this blue planet. And how humbled I am to find myself held in the paradox of such insignificance, how it sinks in that the way I spend my life matters, and at the same time knowing that it does not matter any more than the life of the salmon who hangs suspended in stillness in front of me, the salmon who has just come from the deep sea all the way upstream, salt-soaked wisdom so apparent in her disheveled scales and ragged tail, the salmon who has spawned and who before my eyes I watch die right there on the riverbed, How it is not death or sadness that fills the river in her absence, but the opposite. In her selfless dying, I see the very heart of life itself for the first time. And so through my days, I try my best to always carry with me the humbling, homecoming truth of my interdependence with the world around me. For this truth is medicine for the lost and for the homesick. Okay, Um, beautiful. And so we agree that we need to empty ourselves in the wild to reconnect. But our work as storytellers, by definition, requires an audience. How do you find a balance in dissolving, emptying, letting go of that ego, and then also bringing the stories that you you feel called to tell to an audience? Mm, That's a good question and a difficult question and a messy question. yeah, I mean, well, I good. guess... Good. Messy is good. Yeah, definitely. I guess my answer is going to be messier than the question. Um, but essentially, I mean, how do I find the balance? Well, I'll let you know when I find the balance, and maybe you can let me know, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we're, we're on that they're on that journey together, my friend. Definitely, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that... This is such a a good question to ask oneself over and over again. Um, and for me, I think like anything, um, it comes in waves. And sometimes I find myself spending a lot of time in nature and and yeah, immersed in the side of things that are nonverbal and, and have nothing to do with an audience. Um, and, and I think that that's where, that's where I learn. That's where I learn things. And I learn, I learn most, most of the things, the deepest, most important lessons I've learned in my life have been nonverbal. And it's very difficult to, translate that in a way that feels like it does justice to the original like source of these lessons and of these just of these like insights and and they're not like yeah they're they're not my own um and I hope that I never make Mm. claim that these things are my own and these stories that I share are my own and the experiences that I have um, are shared, always are shared. Um, and, and I guess, yeah, what does that mean? Um, and I think that that means that 
that I feel that the lessons and teachings and experiences and insights that I'm given are truly our gifts. Um, and they don't come obviously a lot of the time. Um, mm-hmm. And I find this, I'm more speaking about writing than, than photographs right now, but it definitely does apply to photographs, but kind of any form of storytelling really. I think that, that the stories that we live and experience are so different in that living and experience and then trying to share them afterwards, whether that be through the form of photography or film or writing or oral storytelling. I think that we're, we're sharing, but a glimpse of that lived experience. Um, And I think it's enough to trigger in people their own lived experiences, even if they've just had a glimpse of what you're talking about. And I think that's where, where the power of storytelling mm-hmm. really comes from is is in triggering other people's relate like ability to relate to that and their own lived experience and and even if they haven't had that that direct lived experience and and you share a story with them of yours and even if there's not a direct relation we're all humans and we're all living on this shared planet and even if you're the most disconnected person from nature living in a city you still know what we're talking about and I think like in your bones maybe not in your conscious memory I think that there there is a resonance um, whenever anyone tells stories about wild places or nature Um, because yeah we all have we all have this shared um relation to the planet and I think I think that that is where the power lies in storytelling um and and balancing being the storyteller and sharing these things with an audience um versus you know living those stories I think that 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 balance is I don't know if it's super conscious in my, my experience. I think it's more, um, more of just um, following, following the natural rhythms of it. You know, sometimes I don't even plan on telling a story and then all of a sudden I'm struck by the need to write something down um, and share it with people. And that, that doesn't feel like it always comes from myself or my brain. It, it feels like a responsibility um, and I also have not answered that call, um, felt like the, the creative um, urge to write something down or translate an experience and been like, oh, I'm too busy. I, I, have, I have to do X, Y, and Z. I have this deadline. And so that burst of creativity or that spark of creativity fades and moves on. And I think it's... Uh, a lost opportunity and, and that's kind of getting down a whole other rabbit hole. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it's important to make space for the storytelling. And I think that the things that are important are going to ask to be told and passed on and shared because that's how we learn um, as communities by, by taking lived experience and stories and sharing them with each other. Um, and that part of the equation is, yeah, it feels like it should be given 
and given freely and received and received freely. Um, hmm. Preach, sister. I'm so with you. And what a eloquent way of parsing that out. That was a big, messy question. You're right. Um, and uh, and it's a you're just flowing with mountain water here because we're going to get right into the next topic. But my reflection on that is that um, I, I completely share that, and I completely share the struggle of hey, I've got this inspiration, and oftentimes it just comes as an image. Um, I've been inspired by um, sort of a sacramental image lately about salmon feeding all the things in the forest and like, what does that physically mean? And, um, you know, even like in regard to my own body on this planet and it's this image, that's very difficult and, uh, you know, that you don't want to think about your, you're not really thinking about your own mortality a lot. It's not always the most pleasant thing, but in relation to how salmon sacrifice their lives. So the, life itself can continue. Um, been thinking about those, those images and it's going to, it takes some time. And I've been running into that very thing that you described of like, Oh man, I got, I've got these 10 other things that have to be done first. I'll, I'll get to that. I'll get to that. And maybe there's some germination in that. And maybe there is some need to, for it to just sort of live in its own subconscious pool back there somewhere for a while. And it's doing its own thing. But I really do struggle with this concept of being versus doing this balance once more, you know, balance. Um, there's another wonderful short piece that you wrote and I wonder if you could read it for us. Yeah, absolutely. So this is something I wrote a few years ago now, um, but it's as usual always applies. Um, so here we go. Living in a culture that promotes an excess of busy isn't easy. The value placed on doing as opposed to being can leave us burnt. Perhaps both have their place. Both being and doing fill up parts of ourselves that need to be nourished regularly. Striking a balance is something I'm still tripping over. Sometimes time itself seems as elusive as the wolves here. The ones who leave tracks in the sand but rarely offer up a glimpse of themselves. But if I'm being honest with myself, there's always time for both being and doing. I often try to trick myself into believing otherwise, letting priorities shift to make space for the urgent rather than the important. Doing rather than being. Deadlines and emails threaten to take the place of leaning into creative energy and of sinking into wild places. At times, it feels like there's no time for anything besides the work that needs to be done to protect this planet. I exist within the grace of the time we are given. Whether I spend it deliberately, give it away freely, savor it in solitude, share it with friends, or let it pass us by and wonder where it all went so fast, I am also given the grace of choice. When I lose sight of this, I try to pause. As air comes into lungs and I come into the moment, the gift of time appears in its only true form. This right here, the now, the present. In this way, I am learning there is always time. The beaches stretch on infinitely out west, especially when the tide is out. These mornings have a timelessness to them that I am a part of. Between dawn and mid-morning, enough beauty fills my senses to keep the fire in me ablaze for a week, or rather, an eternity. 
So beautiful. Thank you, April. I, you know, I feel urgency every day. Like there won't be enough time to get all the work done, you know, especially the work for our planet that you, you mentioned. And, um, I also know that my work suffers if I don't surrender and dissolve and be present. Um, what, what is your maxim for this? If you have one on how to balance this, this conundrum between urgency and, and, uh, being. Mm -hmm. This is possibly the great lesson of my life. Um, and something that I'm, very much learning and I'm like, maybe I have the theory down, but then putting into practice is the whole other story. Um, and I think, I think that, that the, I think the concept of the urgent over the important and how often the urgent wins over the important, um, is something, yeah, that's something I can relate to so much. Um, and something that I try to do that really helps me is really prioritize the importance. And, and because it's so easy to lose sight of that in the face of people, people asking for things and maybe the things that are important to them that are only urgent to me, um, that's, that's a choice that I make, um, how I, how I give my time and how I take time and how I, what I do with it. Um, and I think for me, just really trying my best to stay present, um, so that I can make those choices because when I know that when I'm on autopilot and from all the conditioning of, uh, growing up in a Western society, um, I'm taught from a very young age to prioritize other people's needs and to prioritize um, deadlines and taxes and um, yeah, making enough money to pay my rent and all of these things that are super important. And a lot of us are locked in into having to spend a lot of time doing in order to survive um, and then what's left over is a very tired human and yeah. And then it seems like, it seems like being is so deprioritized in, in Western culture, um, mm -hmm. almost made to seem like it's a waste of time. And I don't know if, if you've had that experience too, but, but even still, even, even with knowing, oh, yeah. Yeah, even with knowing so much with like every fiber in my body that going outside into the forest and spending an hour out there will do so much more for me, will be so healing and so inspiring um, and just like refresh me in a way that, that nothing else does. I still struggle to leave my computer, leave my unanswered emails and go into the forest. And for me, I live off grid and the forest is literally two minutes out the door. And if I struggle to do that, <laughs> then it's, it's hard to, yeah, it's so, it's just hard. It's hard to decondition and prior, reprioritize that being even, even when you know it's medicine. 
um, even when you know that it's probably going to do more to save what we love than answering those emails that are sitting there waiting for you. Um, hmm. Amen. You know, um, I, I had this exact experience yesterday afternoon and I was up against it and really circling around all up in my head, you know, had a, the, the hamster on the, on the wheel, you know, running around in my brain and, um, just getting down on my quote productivity, you know, this stuff, this busyness. And, um, I looked at the weather and it's like, it's 75% chance of rain. And I'm, I finished the last critical call I had for the afternoon. I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I am, I'm going to the Snoqualmie river and I'm, I'm going to go stand in that river and I'm sure it's big and I'm probably not going to catch a goddamn thing, but I'm going to go do that. And I did. And I brought an apple and some water and walked out the door and was out there 45 minutes later and standing in this river and getting, getting drenched and was overflowing with joy. And I didn't catch damn thing. And it was beautiful. And an hour and a half in that river gave me the nourishment I needed, uh, desperately needed this week. And, um, you know, so I, I, I've been doing this since back, I don't know, like in November. Um, I dedicated a day a week, like I'm going to get out one day a week, come hell or high water. And, you know, the last, I don't know, two or three weeks, I've been getting super busy and I haven't done it. And boy, do I, I can tell. It's just incredible. I can physically feel it in my chest, in my body. Um, do you have other tools or I don't know, self-imposed mandates or, you know, things that you can do that, that help you focus on the present. I do. Yeah. And I can relate so much to your story. Um, yeah, it's, I, I'm always, I'm trying not to kick myself for how, how long it takes me to remember that it's like a constant remembering and forgetting. I'm like, <laughs> just go to the river, just go to the river. And I, I have the like great privilege of yep. for four months of the year, every day going to the river and walking up it for work. Um, and still there I am in the spring <laughs> being like getting, yeah, getting so unwell. And all I need to do is go outside and take a breath, go to the forest, go by the river, just really do anything outside. And um, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, but yeah, in terms of things that keep me present, um, I have a very, uh, intermittent practice of meditation and um, that really has it really helps me to connect with the present moment and remember that that in the present is, is where I where I exist and you know if I'm thinking about the future and if I'm thinking about the past and I'm not really here living and um, of course it's necessary to plan and uh, and unpack the past at times but if that's if that's your dominant reality then you know if you're only spending an hour a week in the present moment with your feet in the river like how is that really a balance and um and then how to achieve that with all mm -hmm. of, all of the demands and all of the you know all the work we're trying to do um to to halt the course that we're currently on as a as a species on a planet that 
that uh, our own species is destroying. So it's it does feel like the work is urgent a lot of the time, especially with the work that, that you do um, and that hopefully I'm doing. Um, but yeah, yeah, meditation is something that I do. Um, and I think it's different. I feel like it's just going to be so different for everybody. Like for myself, writing really helps me to remember. Um, it helps me to put these things mm-hmm these experiences into words and, and be like, Oh yes, this is very important. And, um, and to reflect on, on those experiences. And I think that there's also a way that you can go out for a walk in the forest and not be present for that and miss out on the healing and the attunement that, that is going to really totally change your whole, whole body and mind. Um, and I think that that used to happen to me a lot is, um, is going out and, and being, you know, literally answering emails in my head instead of taking in this like giant red cedar in front of me. Um, and that's been a practice to, to step away from and, and to learn how to be present in nature because I wasn't taught that growing up in Western culture at all. I was, you know, I was taught to fear the things that I now find the most healing and joy within. Um, and so that's a lot of conditioning to undo and a lot of um, learning to how to be present with nature and how to sit, ne- sit next to a dandelion and just like be in awe of it. You know, it's, it's not something that's uh, taught very often, but it's something that we all know how to do um, if you strip away those layers of conditioning. I love that you bring up, um, first of all, obviously we're, you know, completely simpatico on, on, on nature that that's like, you know, it's like plugging into the, the main line of electricity for sure. But, you know, to be clear, you're bringing up that you're two minutes away from the wilderness and you still run into these problems. First of all, man, that makes me feel a lot better. Um, (laughs) Cause I, I have that excuse all the time and I'm like, yeah, God, if I was just still living up in the Tongass, uh, national forest in, in Southeast Alaska, boy, I, I would really be connecting then. And that's complete bullshit. You know, it's about, it is about making that decision. Like you say, it's about, you, you know, I'm going to go and connect. You can connect with the face of, uh, an elder on the street in the city you can connect with um, an, a, you know, a line of ants. You can connect with a flower coming out. I mean, man, it's springtime. It, it's a miracle all around. You don't have to be in proximity of wilderness to to see the miracle, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, in fact, you know, clearly for the kind of work we're we're doing and the thing we're drawn to, it is it is the main source of medicine and and you know. The, the ground level of inspiration. Um, so I wanted to chat for a second about, and, and we're kind of touching on it right now, actually, but I just want to chat for a second about trauma. I mean, we, we all experience it to some degree. I have, I know you have, um, what do you find in the wild that is the best medicine for you? Um, I've got my own answer to this too, but I'm, I'm curious what, what it is for you that the wild does that gives you a sense of 
belonging and comfort in the face of trauma during our lifetime. Yeah, thanks for asking that. And I'm looking forward to hearing your insight on that as well, because I think it is different for everyone. And um, my relationship with nature and with wilderness and with this planet really did stem from experiencing trauma um, and, yeah, facing sexual violence, facing um, a myriad of other traumatic incidents, um, and most recently a car accident and brain injury. So there's so many forms of trauma, and I don't think anyone gets out alive, you know? Like, most humans have some form of trauma, mm-hmm. if not all of us. Um, and so how how do we heal from that, and how do we reckon with that? And for me, um, with, I think that's, you know, the, the context of that diving story I shared earlier, um, about taking my first breath underwater, like that really pulled me out of a a trauma state and, and made me see the world in a totally different way. And, um, and then again, after that, I went through a pretty traumatic experience, um, and, and coming out on the other side of that, it was diving um, and being underwater and, and that relationship with the octopus that I shared um, that helped me heal from that and showed me how to trust another creature again. Um, and from there is where I like built up again. Um, and honestly, the last like however many years has been in, in lieu of uh of people who were able to teach me the things, um, the big life lessons, the real deep things that steer the course of your life. Um, you know, I had some mentors in wildlife photography who very much, instead of helping me decipher ethics and, um, and how to, how to be a good human, um, and how to, how to interact with wildlife, um, you know, were abusive and, and I'm still unlearning the things that I, uh, unfortunately learned from them and so from there I really had to look to to another source and that source for me was wild places and nature um, and wildlife and especially salmon salmon have taught me all of the great lessons of life and they've they've taught me how to reckon with my own mortality and and how to make the most of a short life um you know, I can remember I've, I've really struggled in my life with um, like suicidal ideation and, and that sort of thing for, for a while. And, and walking salmon rivers in the fall um, and seeing live salmon spawning and giving their lives for the next generation of salmon and bank bowls of morts, um, dead salmon, and just really like really feeling and being immersed in like that dance of death and life um, and life and death and being a part of that has taught me so much about what it is to be a creature on this planet and, and how to, how to navigate, how to navigate trauma um, and work through all of that. And I think, I don't know where I'd be without without those lessons and without these experiences. Um, 
And it really taught me to, you know, in a time of my life where I moved off grid to be alone because being around people was too triggering and too traumatic for me to even live through moving off grid and, and sitting with nature and being like, now, now I'm sitting in this aloneness and isolation and then literally sitting on the bank of a salmon river, realizing that I'm the furthest thing from alone that I've ever been and being in relationship with, you know, the earth itself and all of these creatures. Um, yeah, I will, I will never experience that a sense of aloneness and isolation again because of that and that's such a gift and I hope that other people can find that gift for themselves too because it's the access to that is everywhere like you said you can be in a city far from nature and the access is there all you have to do is look up at the sky and watch the clouds the stars and you can you can access that that community um, and sense of belonging through that Thank you for sharing that incredibly vulnerable part of you, April. It is incredibly generous, and um, I'm getting so much in my heart right now out of it, and I know our listeners are too. Um, I, I'm just sitting here nodding, <laughs> just dumbly nodding. But the, the you know, like you say, we don't get out alive, um, and everybody to greater or lesser degrees, you've experienced some deeply emotional deeply physical and emotional trauma and i've i've experienced emotional trauma and i've gone through a, a you know a putting myself underwater um going through addiction and and it really all centered around one thing and you you hit it it was isolation it was this sense of aloneness and going it alone and the need to go it alone and figure it all out and as you were talking, I was recalling in my mind's eye, um, when I checked out, I checked out for two years off grid in Southeast Alaska and was along a salmon Creek. And, um, I remember one evening in particular was out in a canoe and it was silent and it was sort of that magic hour and it was in the fall. Um, and I remember thinking that I hadn't had a watch in a while and I didn't need it because the the time had just completely become irrelevant. It was no no longer this this function of a mechanism or um, all that urgency. It was about the time when the steelhead come home, or the time when the ducks are here, or the time when the geese leave, or the, you know, it just became a much slower and more inclusive way of living. And I felt completely connected. And in that moment, that one instance on out there in, in yes Bay uh, in the canoe, uh, I felt complete and content. Didn't need another thing at all. And um, in that, you know, was not alone at all. And, uh, so, and I also love, I love what you said about accessing it by looking up or looking down, you know, or, or, you know, reaching out and 
God forbid, holding someone's hand now in the time of COVID that we're drawing out of. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that your 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 wisdom, your insight, and your vulnerability. Um, so now that we are crawling out of COVID, do you feel a little bit more drawn to collaborating with um, you know other folks? to do the work we're doing here in Salmon Nation and how do you best see that working learning from the last year? Do you think that, you know, being miles apart as we are right now, do you, do you sense that maybe there's some um, benefit that we've learned in this time of, of how to collaborate in a better way? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that last experience too. Um, but yeah, I do feel like, I mean, I don't think anyone's gone through this pandemic and been unchanged. And if they have, I feel sorry for them. You know, like I think that, that with all of the, the trauma of this pandemic and all of the loss and the division, that's something that has been breaking my heart as much as, you know, seeing all the deaths involved is the division of like, you know, from outright denial of, um, people's direct experiences and, and, you know, body shaming and all of these with, with, you know, making your own decisions regarding vaccines and everything to, yeah. And, and that's on both sides too. Um, yeah. Just, just the polarization. And we've seen that a lot in the last couple of years. I think that some of the big lessons that have come out of the pandemic for me, and these will be different for anybody. Um, is just how important it is to connect with people as communities and work together. Um, and it's really, it's really highlighted how to do that. And, and, you know, the, the greatest examples that I've seen have been from, from the communities that I live near, um, which is, you know, uh, Alert Bay, um, Glyastown, um, Health, the Health Nation has been an amazing example um, of of how you know, and these are all Indigenous nations who who know how to take care of each other and have been doing that for thousands of years on this coast, and and you know that looks like food sovereignty and talking to each other and doing what's best for your community, and I think these practices have become more yeah more definitely more necessary they've always been necessary but the pandemic has really made it has really pointed out that necessity um and i think that for me i've been doing a lot of you know learning and unlearning and just it's really pointed out how dysfunctional and destructive and oppressive the like western culture and like colonial mentality of of this uh this country that i'm a part of canada is and and what that does to people and how it even outside of a pandemic is so disconnecting um and keeps people separate and and this mentality of of extreme independence um and the pandemic has really highlighted that for me with having, you know, physically separating everyone now and socially separating everyone. Um, there's a difference between 
separating yourself socially to keep your community safe and having having your culture, you know, this Western culture that I was raised in, separating you emotionally and spiritually and isolating you um, from people in a different way. Um, and I think that the pandemic's form of isolation, you know, doing it out of a sense of care uh, is a lot easier to deal with because I'm going to come out of that and with a greater understanding of just how important a connection is and just how important it is to work together as communities. Um, and I'm still going to be doing the hard work of unlearning these things that this conditioning that I have of isolating myself spiritually and from community and everything just from that kind of independence um, mindset. And yeah. Um, and then in terms of environmentally um, and planet in a planetary sense of, of the impacts of, of this pandemic, I think, I think it's going to really reframe the work that I've been doing. Um, mm. And I'm not sure exactly how to explain that other than it's really stripped away all the fat of, of the industries that I've been participating in, um, in the conservation industry. Um, because it just shows, it's just shown how, it's highlighted the import, importance and it's really stripped away the fat of like the things that seemed urgent. Mm. Um, and it's put the sharper point on the work that I think we're all doing. Um, and just, you know, it's really given a sense of, of we don't have that much time and there's so much that needs to change. And, and my work has really mirrored that with Creek walking because, one of the salmon rivers that I walk, it should have a run historically it's had a run of forty thousand fish. And last year I walked up it and I believe the peak number was forty, um, forty chum salmon as opposed opposed to a run of forty thousand. And this grizzly bear that's in there who has never even looked twice at me in previous years when there was more fish is all of a sudden bluff charging me because of the sense of scarcity and this grizzly bear is eating black bears hmm. because there's not enough salmon for him to survive the winter. And all of a sudden this like scarcity, this landscape of scarcity has completely changed how we relate to each other. And I, I'm hoping that in, in the human world um, that I feel like we're heading towards a huge landscape of scarcity and I hope it doesn't pit us against each other. I hope that we, because we have the gift of consciousness and, and, you know, the ability to work together to right these wrongs and to bring salmon back and to do all these things. I hope that it binds us together rather than tears us further apart well, one thing's for sure. We're going to need another time to connect. <laughs> we could keep going for a couple more hours, honestly. Um, yeah, it, profound wisdom in your words. I, uh, 
in regard to salmon in particular, you know, it is one part of this giant knot of the the mess we are we've got painted ourselves into here um, as a species, and obviously, you know, salmon have wound their ways into our hearts, and so we focus so much energy on them for what they represent and what they physically offer uh, to the bioregion. Um, you know, clearly I've been looking at Bristol Bay uh, because it's an intact ecosystem still. And, and also then, you know, my closer uh, to home here in, in the Salish Sea and the issues with the uh, scarcity of Chinook and the four salmon blocking dams still in the Snake River. Um, it's a massive topic. You've just painted a very urgent and um, potent picture of the, of walking that creek with only forty chum last year. What can we do? What can you do based on where you are now in your community, in your small part of the bioregion? What is the advice you have for um, doing what we can to protect? wild salmon and try to bring these fish back in, in, in numbers and in, in health and in, um, you know, to, to help the entire ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Isn't that the question, the question of our lifetime? Um, honestly, there, I have, I've had several urges over the past couple of weeks to move our conversation to a, a much later date until I've figured out the answer to this question. Um, but and then realizing that, um, yeah, I'm never going to have a clean and clear answer to that. Well, I, I mean, I hope that I will, but at this point, um, at this point, all I have is the understanding that I have now. Um, and I think that there's a lot of people who, who have been thinking about this for a much longer time than I have. And so I still have so much to learn. Um, but from where I stand and from the experiences that I've had, um, I can honestly say that earlier I said salmon, you know, it's they're in a case of a de death by a thousand cuts. And I, what I meant by that was they have been impacted at every stage of their life, at every corner they turn, they face some new, some threat. And, you know, whether that's, that's logging, clear cut logging their, their headwaters to using their rivers as log shoots, you know, however many years ago that they did that. And, you know, saying forestry has no impact on or little impact on um, salmon populations and declines um, while damming up the lakes and using the small salmon bearing creeks as, as log shoots to get these giant cedars out. Um, and so that's, that's up in the rivers. And then, um, yeah, and never mind, you know, natural predators and all of the, the natural um, hurdles that salmon face in order to make it back to those that river to survive. But they come out of those rivers um, that which hillsides and clear cuts have been sprayed with pesticides or herbicides, um, and you know you're dealing with more acidity in streams and coming out and passing um, industrial open net uh, fish farms 
in the ocean, um, which are infecting the, the juvenile salmon with sea lice and disease. Um, you know, it really is death by a thousand cuts. And then they go out into the ocean and are facing all of the challenges of, you know, what climate change is doing to our planet and shift, huge shifting um, oceanic changes. And, and then you've got the fishing industry. Um, and I'm, I'm not really a fan of demonizing the fishing industry, except for huge, huge, um, you know, the huge super trawlers out there. And, but in terms of like the family run, you know, I've commercial fish before and, um, yeah, the, and yeah, so it's, it really is just so many things. And, and I think that it's really systemic change that we need and it's, it's a huge worldview shift that we need. And it's, it's not, it's a change in relationship with the natural world and it's changing your relationship with forests and trees and rivers and fish. And a lot of people don't have those relationships to begin with, which is what allows this extractive industry and many extractive industries to pull out all of these resources, quote unquote, um, until there's nothing left. And then, and then we do years of science to try and figure out why there's nothing left while, you know, populations of salmon go extinct. Um, and so it's the system isn't working for the people. It's working for industry and it's working for this like global economy. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's just shocking. It's shocking that, I just feel like we know what the problem is and shutting down or changing, hugely changing how we relate to these things that we call resources is the only way it's going to change. I love that um, we ground our passion and our work in love. And I think that, um, when I look at your images and when I read your essays, that's what I, I glean is that love. And so faced with the incredible volume of challenges we have, I would personally, um, it's the name of the show and I would prescribe, you know, finding some way to connect to something in, in the natural world, something bigger than ourselves to love. If you love something, you're going to fight for it. Um, you feel the same way? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, everything has to be grounded in, in love. And I think these changes need to be made in love. And, um, yeah, my friend, uh, Nikki Sanchez says love is the revolution. And that's always really stuck with me. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly what it is because you can't change things with, with um, resentment or, you know, all of these other things. And I think, I think that, I think that rage is rooted in love. Um, I think that there's a lot of emotions that are rooted in love. Um, and it just, it's, yeah, you just have to check in with yourself and make sure that that, that is the root and that's the driving force. Well, 
Okay, so I, I feel like we have an open invitation. Perhaps if we, can, if I can catch up with you and you're back off the water when you do have it figured out, um, <laughs> the okay, salmon conundrum. I'll let you know. <laughs> um, which, which means that's a, a, li- a lifetime open invitation. So, um, but for now, we'll start wrapping it up. And um, I've got this fun little speed round at the end of each one of these things. And um, so here's here's the shtick. Let's say you're, you know, God forbid your house were on fire. You get out your loved ones, your pets, of course. Um, but is there one physical thing you would take with you and what would that be? Mm, oh, that's fun. Um, just looking around here. I mean, definitely not if it was going to, you know, put me in danger or put my pets in danger or whatever. But my dog and my cat would would be outside already. Um mm-hmm. I think the only thing that's coming to mind, I mean, yeah, material possessions um, definitely aren't like a lot of the time worth saving. Um, But there is one thing that I think I would dash in and grab if I get a free pass. And that would be um, this plant that I have. Well, if I could save all my plants, that'd be great. But um, this one plant uh, called the queen of the night, and it was, it's a cutting from uh, my grandfather's, uh, original plant um, who the plant is now like a lot of my family members have um, cuttings and they're growing them and and the plant the flower blooms on the full moon um, and yeah I've worked really hard to keep it alive and my grandpa has passed away and he means a lot to me so um, I'd probably grab that uh, yeah <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> that's beautiful um all right. Well, let's call it now your spiritual house. Like, get a little metaphysical here. What are the two characteristics about you that you would take if you could only take two things that make you you? Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Um, I think I would take my, and I say my with the utmost attachment, but <laughs> uh, my sense of awareness. I think um, that that kind of mm. ability, like the things that all the things that make me me, um, step back from that and that that perspective of witnessing those things and realizing that I'm larger than this human human body that I am lucky enough to inhabit um, in this lifetime, and so just having that that larger sense of of uh, awareness. It's one thing. Fantastic. Um, and I, I totally see that. And um, that's been this conversation today. Lastly, is there anything you would leave behind to be burned up oh, left in the fire, purified? Everything else. That would, that would be very cleansing and <laughs> a lot of relief. Um, but in particular, I think for my, you know, the more metaphysical aspect of it. Um, ooh, that's a hard one. My knee-jerk reaction was to say uh, my fear, and so I'll probably go with that one. Um, mm. Yeah, just like the fear, especially um, social fear for me. Um, yeah, and I think that that would really I think if everyone could leave that fear, social fear behind, it would really free us all up to be who we truly are and do what we're here to do. Fear's a doozy, um, but here we are. 
talking to each other and eradicating it for the moment. So I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for this beautiful conversation today, April Bent. Um, how can people get involved with your work? How can people see your images and read the words, the beautiful words you write? Um, where do they find you? Um, they can find me on uh, Instagram uh, at April Benz. My last name is spelled B-N-C-Z-E. Um, and my website is longlivethecoast.ca, which I have to update. Um, yeah. And then in real life, you can uh, find me on Kwikwetut Nukwukwami's First Nation Territory, uh, where I live and work. I can't wait to visit someday, and I, I hope we can continue this conversation um, as we progress into this new new world we're in um, after uh, after this little sleep. And um, I appreciate you so much. Thank you for being with us today. And uh, till till next time, we'll see you down the trail. Thank you so much for everything you do, Mark, and thanks for having me on here. So long. How do you say what you love? How do you say what you love? Thank you for listening to Say What You Love. If you like what you're hearing, you can help keep these conversations coming your way by giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can check out photos and links from this episode at avaswild.com. While there, you can join our growing community by subscribing to our newsletter. You'll get exclusive offers on wild salmon shipped to your door and notifications about upcoming guests and more great content on the way. That's at avaswild.com. That's the word save spelled backwards, wild.com. This episode was produced by Tyler White and edited by Patrick Troll. Original music was created by Whiskey Class. This podcast is a collaboration between Ava's Wild Stories and Salmon Nation and was recorded on the homelands of the Duwamish people. We'd like to recognize these lands and waters and their significance for the peoples who lived and continue to live in this region, whose practices and spiritualities were and are tied to the land and the water, and whose lives continue to enrich and develop in relationship to the land, waters, and other inhabitants today.